Welcome to Wyoming, my 307. It's been a while. My name is Carla Mowell. And as a kid, I spent countless miles on airplanes. My dad was in the oil business and I grew up in places like Iran, Congo, Spain, Nigeria, Scotland. And we traveled to visit grandparents in Bolivia and Argentina and right here in Wyoming. This was at the tail end of the so-called golden age of air travel. And I remember that the bathrooms had like little bottles of perfume and fancy lotion. They gave us steamy hot towels to freshen up before eating elaborate meals. They would take us into the cockpit to meet the pilots and see all the flashing buttons. And then they gave us little junior pilot pins and a box of art supplies to use during the flight. Have you flown lately? Let's just say it's not like that now. It's very different. No one gets to check out the cockpit. You barely get a snack, much less perfume and hot towels. Little did I know then that Wyoming actually plays a significant role in the history of flight. On my Instagram recently, I shared the story of a local man named Jack Kopman who invented a gliding machine. Now, this was way before the Wright brothers got their planes off the ground. And Kopman wanted to fly his machine off the perfect cliff in the Bighorns. That cliff is now named after him. It's called Kopman's Tomb. You need to check out my Instagram stories to learn more. Wyoming has several famous flight stories, though. There's a World War II tale of a B-17 that flew 150 miles off course and crashed into what is now called Bomber Mountain. Then there's the 1955 crash of Flight 409 onto Medicine Bow Peak. Now, that was the worst commercial aviation disaster of its time. Today's guest is Mike Castle. Mike has worked at the Cheyenne Frontier Days Old West Museum for over 20 years, and he delved deep into the history of flight in Wyoming. He co-wrote two books about the history of flight in Wyoming. So let's have a listen. Welcome to Wyoming, my 307. Thank you for having me. It's a pleasure to be here, Carla. I was really excited to have you on here because you've written two really great books on Wyoming aviation history, which we're going to talk about today. One of them is called Wyoming Airmail Pioneers, and the other is Wyoming's Friendly Skies. The story of Wyoming aviation history is actually the story of Cheyenne from the 20s through the 50s. Why is Cheyenne the nexus of Wyoming's aviation history? Okay, well, it's a very interesting question, and it all has to do with something that people wouldn't anticipate would have anything to do with airlines or airmail or anything else like that. It's geography. What we're talking about is that when the Transcontinental Railroad, and they're all interrelated, when the Transcontinental Railroad was established in 1867, a, couple, a year prior to that, Grenville Adodge, who was the chief engineer for the Union Pacific, was trying desperately to find a way for the railroads to get through the Rocky Mountains without having to divert and go all the way up to what a lot of people thought would be the natural choice, would be to go towards the Oregon Trail, which had already found its way across the Continental Divide. But the problem what the Union Pacific was trying to face was that they wanted to be close enough to Denver uh, to get down there for all of its gold and silver and then still be able to make it through the mountains. And the problem is, of course, if anybody's driven from Wyoming down to Denver, Colorado, you'll notice that as soon as you cross the Wyoming border, the mountains get titanic. We got 14ers all along the front range. Those were impossible for locomotives to pass, especially during the 1860s. So by happenstance and by circumstance, he found a pass that was perfect for the locomotives of that day. 
And that was called Sherman Pass over a geological feature known as the Gangplank. And this Gangplank is about 30 miles west of Cheyenne, and it literally is almost a mile wide. And this is a geographic feature that is, I mean, it exists nowhere else near the Continental Divide except in Canada. So it was amazing that he found this mile-wide strip of land where the rock, the rocks and the landscape of the Great Plains goes up and meets the top of the Continental Divide without being broken by the mountains. And so this wonderful gap, which is now called Sherman Hill by the Union Pacific, allowed the Union Pacific to transit the Rocky Mountains without having to go over a really steep grade or go too far out of its way and still have access to Denver. And so that is why Cheyenne is located where it was, is because of that geographic feature. Now, that doesn't sound like that would have anything to do with transcontinental aviation because we keep thinking about the fact that we could fly over mountains or we can fly over all the obstacles and barriers. But interestingly enough, the same geographic feature is the same reason why aviation came through here first. The Lincoln Highway basically followed the Union Pacific, and that meant that it was able to connect all the villages and towns all along the country uh, that were already railroad towns. Similarly, in 1919, General Billy Mitchell and his staff were trying to do a demonstration for Congress to demonstrate that it was possible to fly from one coast to the next without having to stop, then basically saying that the defense by the American continent by air was entirely possible. But they had to find a route, and there were two considerations that they had to have. One was that the aircraft of that time were not capable of long-term flight at high altitudes like they are today. Sure, they could get up to very high altitudes, um, you know, 20, 30,000 feet if necessary, but they couldn't do it for very long. If you're trying to do a transcontinental flight, you want to make sure that the planes don't have to tax themselves for fuel purposes or otherwise. And they were looking for the lowest point to get through the Rocky Mountains. Originally, they thought about going through Denver, but then those gigantic 14,000-foot peaks did exactly the same thing uh, that the railroads would have had a problem with. And they said, well, why are we making this hard? We've got several things that are very beneficial. One, the Union Pacific already found the lowest pass through the Rocky Mountains just west of Cheyenne. So that's one reason they came here. Another reason that Billy Mitchell and his uh, Army Air Corps flyers came here is because we had Fort David Allen Russell at that time, which was also built to protect the railroad, but it was a military base with lots of flat land around it, perfect for temporary airfields. Billy Mitchell knew that most of his pilots had never flown across the United States before. So he was thinking that if they had a series of landmarks that these pilots could follow if they saw the ground, it would be much easier. And of course, the more uh, curious and enterprising of his officers said, well, there's one landmark that goes unbroken from Chicago, Illinois, all the way to San Francisco. And that just happens to be the Union Pacific Railroad. So yes, if a pilot just kept the Union Pacific off his left wing, whether he's flying east or west, he would be able to fly all the way across the country and not get lost. And so that's why Cheyenne, by its geography, its location, and by accident, was on the first actual established flight route across the United States. I found it very interesting that to fly out of Denver, you had to go to Cheyenne first, which if anybody's been to DIA, it's halfway to Cheyenne anyway. <laughs> right, right. Yeah, it's kind of an interesting twist, isn't it? To think that if you were going to fly anywhere in the continental United States, you'd have to come get a connecting flight to Cheyenne if you were going to fly up. And actually, all the way up until about, oh, I'd say 
1928, if I remember correctly, Stapleton Airport. Stapleton was established about 1928. Well, Cheyenne had an airfield that had been operating for eight years prior to that. And two years before Stapleton was even established, we had a major airline that got one of the first in the country that was run by Bill Boeing, who is the president and founder of the Boeing Aircraft Corporation. He bought a portion of the airmail route from the United States government to fly passengers and have the mail contracts on this route. And he decided to locate his headquarters for his entire airline in Cheyenne, Wyoming. The route that he purchased was commercial airmail route number 18 and went from Chicago, Illinois to San Francisco. By the flight path that was originally established by the airmail service, the direct center point of that flight route was Cheyenne. And so he thought, if I'm going to fly this whole route, that's the perfect place to put my airline's brand new headquarters, and I will train all my pilots there. I will have all the tickets sold from there. I will have all the flights arranged from there, and I'll even fix my airplanes there. It's amazing that in 1927, that Bill Boeing, the man who, you know, we're talking about planes like the Dreamliner, the 777, or even the famous 747, same company, built its first commercial airliners to fly out of Cheyenne, Wyoming. Well, your book covers a lot of really interesting characters. One of them that I wanted you to tell us a little bit about was Colonel Billy Mitchell. Yeah, well, Colonel Billy Mitchell, I mean, at this point in 1919, I've already mentioned this guy. He's the guy that actually established that transcontinental air reliability test. He was a thorn in Congress's side and also to his superiors in the United States Army because he was the loudest and most consistent advocate for air power early in our nation's history. Now, what a lot of people don't realize is that even though the United States is the country that originated powered flight, we're, of course, talking Orville and Wilbur Wright, the Orville and Wilbur Wright sat on their invention and didn't let it go public until 1909. They kept trying to get more and more money out of this new invention. And while they waited for that great deal, the Europeans not only caught up and in some cases surpassed us. And then when World War I broke out, the United States wasn't the center of the aviation world. It was Europe. And so a lot of aviators, including Billy Mitchell, went over to fight in Europe, and it was there they began to realize the potential for air power in the United States. Billy Mitchell got himself in constant trouble. He was such a great and loud advocate that he was constantly being uh, caught in trouble by superior officers or members of Congress. But uh, he did many interesting things to push what would eventually become the United States Air Force. Uh, so he's a rather famous individual. Uh, the United States Air Force, if I remember correctly, was founded in 1947, which is after he passed. But he was fundamental in creating the Army Air Corps, uh, which, of course, is what the Air Force was known as uh, prior to becoming a separate branch, uh, all the way through the 1930s and World War II. One of my other favorite characters is in the Airmail Pioneers book. I yes. call him my knight in shining armor, and that's Jack Knight. <laughs> oh, I love that guy. He's <laughs> Tell fun. us about him. Well, Jack Knight is an interesting guy. He's not originally from Wyoming. He's a pilot that, like so many of the other pilots that joined the Army during World War I, came over to the United States and didn't have any work. Uh, so they had flown for the United States Army Air Corps over in Europe and then came back to the United States, but there was no prospect for jobs. There's no nothing that you could hire pilots for. Nobody had any airlines. After the United States Army did their demonstration in 1919, well, the Army Air Corps still needed pilots, but there was no commercial demand and there's no way to make good money unless you stayed in the Army. 
Well, that all changed with the establishment of the U.S. Airmail Service. And Jack Knight is one of the earliest pilots to join the airmail service after it was founded uh, originally in 1918. That's when it started between Washington, D.C. and I believe New York and Boston. But then in 1920, it began to expand all across the country. And Jack Knight found himself to be stationed here in Cheyenne. And he actually did turn out to be one of the more interesting characters. And what I particularly like about him is that he was absolutely fearless. I mean, he was just fearless. When we think about these early airmail pilots, we have to think about what they did not have that modern pilots take advantage of. They didn't have radios that worked from the air to the ground. They didn't have wayfinding devices or signals that would help them find their way across the country. And they didn't even have good airfields. Uh, for the most part, Cheyenne's airfield here uh, was nothing but a grass square patch uh, that was north of our cemetery. <laughs> you know, these guys basically flew across the continent by the seat of their pants. They didn't necessarily trust their compass. They basically were able to follow uh, landmarks like the Union Pacific Railroad. But then as they got better, they realized they could leave the Union Pacific Railroad and fly routes through the mountains that didn't rely on the railroad tracks. He, along with several other pilots, consistently ran into difficult problems. And like One of my favorite stories about Jack Knight is when he took off, I mean, most of these pilots flew a certain route and began to know this like the back of their hands. So they would recognize landmarks on any day, any time of day, in any weather. Well, at one point, he was ordered to fly the mail from Cheyenne, Wyoming to Salt Lake City. That was his route. He took off from Cheyenne, I believe this is in 1921, and the wind was so ferocious that he used up all of his gas to get to the area of Vitavu. He almost ran the plane completely out of gas, realized he wasn't making any headway after two hours of flying because of the headwind. So he turned his plane around to fly back to Cheyenne and got back in 15 minutes. Apparently, the wind at his back helped him to establish a world speed record for flight. <laughs> but that also had the problem is that once he got to Cheyenne, he had the problem to get down. And so he had to do all kinds of maneuvers to let the air out from under his wings. Uh, he literally had to land that plane like a helicopter almost on the ground. And he was so excited about his tailwind experience, he ran in <laughs> and talked to his superintendent and said, hey, I've got this great idea. Give me an airplane and give me the mail to Chicago. I'll get there in two hours. His superintendent said, no, you're absolutely out of your mind. Not going to do that for you. But he didn't care. I mean, so many of these pilots were just wonderful, but Jack Knight was certainly a brave individual. Well, I had made a list of some of the, some of the points that pilots used to navigate and of course, rail lines were the main one, but there were also beacons and yes. giant arrows, <laughs> which I yes. want to find one of those giant arrows and just stand on it. You even mention local helpers, like ranchers or whatever, lighting torches so that they could see their next stop at night. And I was just like, this is a whole community effort getting these planes across the country. So it was not an uncommon thing. There's another pilot by the name of Hal Collison from the book who I love to talk about that had to crash land multiple times in Wyoming because a piece of his plane fell off or the engine stopped working. <laughs> and they would land in this rancher's field and the rancher would come out and help him, uh, you know, basically either try and fix the plane or get it pushed to a road so that, so that the mechanics could come get it. Yeah, the local community loved the airmail pilots. Uh, they certainly they enjoyed watching these guys fly overhead. But when you mention the helpers, there's one aspect about Jack Knight that makes him particularly special. 
Uh, when you talk about beacons and arrows and all of those types of wayfinding devices, none of those existed prior to 1921. And there was a stunt that the United States Postal Service came up with that uh, they were looking at the loss of funding from Congress because Congress was never a fan of the airmail service. They thought it was a, an expensive and dangerous affair that they didn't really want to invest in. Well, anyway, the post office decided to pull this stunt to prove that the airmail service was reliable 24 hours a day, that it could fly not only during the day, but could also fly at night. Now, I'd already mentioned before how hard it was for people to find their way across the country during broad daylight. To find it, their way across it during the evening was almost impossible. And so what the post office decided to do to help out their pilots, and they were going to do this all on one day, the day is about February 21st, uh, 1921, is they were going to fly from San Francisco all the way to Chicago and then on to Washington, D.C. without stopping, even though that meant flying over the night hours. Since these pilots couldn't see the ge geography of the ground, they were going to have a bunch of ranchers and other local people go park their cars next to the Union Pacific Railroad, which was going to be used as the main compass and the guide for these pilots, and then shine the headlights of their brand new cars, if they had them, in the direction that the pilots are supposed to go. And they were also supposed to light bonfires if they didn't have cars, so the pilots would be able to see the route from the air all the way across the country. Well, Jack Knight, by that time, had a route that he was supposed to fly from Cheyenne, Wyoming to Omaha. So he was very familiar about flying across Nebraska. So these pilots did not fly the whole way. They each flew sections of the, tra of the trail all the way across the continent. Well, as it happened, the uh, day that they chose to do this turned out to be the beginning of one of the worst blizzards in the early 1920s. Very cold, bitter, snowy weather, and it would be difficult to see during the day. Now it's going to be nighttime with blizzard conditions, so that's going to obscure the ground and everything else. But on the day of the flight, the flights were starting to take off from Cheyenne to head west, or head east rather, as the sun was going down. Well, the pilot, when he got to uh, North Platte, Nebraska, and Jack Knight had just flown to Omaha, and now he was sitting in North Platte, Nebraska, and was on his way back to Cheyenne to finish his run. Here comes this special run to fly the night, and the pilot landed at North Platte, said the weather was so bad, and it was, that he refused to go any further. Well, Jack Knight, even though his plane had a broken tail skid, which is the little prong on the back of the tail that kept the tail off the ground when they flew, he didn't think it was a good idea just to stop because he thought that the weather wasn't so bad further east. So he volunteered to take the mailbags from this pilot who refused to go any further and then had to wait until it got really, really dark, putting himself a couple hours behind schedule until they fixed that tail skid. And then he took off into a worsening blizzard. So again, these guys didn't have the same weather forecasting that we do where you can tell whether or not things are going to be good or bad or how, for how long. He didn't realize that when he was taking off, the blizzard was going to get worse in the direction he was going. It was fortunate that he knew most of the route because as people were waiting for him to take off, they assumed that the weather was canceling the event. And the post office could not tell all these people that, no, it was still going on. So many of the people with their cars and their bonfires went home or let the fires go cold. And Jack Knight is up in the air again, but he no longer has those beacons to follow. But as I mentioned, he knows the way so well that he does get to Omaha. But then when he gets there, he realizes the pilots that were supposed to take off don't want to go anywhere either because the weather's worse than ever before. Now, he himself had never flown east of Omaha, Nebraska. He volunteered once again to just fly the rest of the way to Chicago, even though he had never been there. 
And so he stuffed newspapers into his boots. He stuffed newspapers into his jacket because the temperature was dropping to well below zero by this time. He looked at a map on the wall to basically figure out kind of where he was supposed to go. And then into the teeth, uh, teeth of this storm about midnight, he took off again and started sailing east. Uh, eventually, he was starting to run out of gas. He did get a little bit lost over Iowa. And uh, he eventually found the railroad tracks again and started following that to Iowa City. Now, the people in Iowa City had thought that, the, that you know, Jack Knight had probably gone down someplace because they hadn't seen him since he had left. And so their airfield was more or less unmanned, except for one little caretaker who had stayed there overnight. About one or two o'clock in the morning, he hears Jack Knight's airplane. By this time, the blizzard has a little bit of a lull. It's a very crisp but very dark night out there. And he hears the engine, but he can't see the airplane. So he lights his lamp, waves it, and he is missed barely by Jack Knight, who is flying on maybe 20 minutes worth of gas in his tank. He's that low on gas. And Jack Knight saw that lantern, and that's how he was able to find his way down because of this one guy on this airfield. He gave Jack Knight his lunch. Uh, that he was keeping overnight, gave the guy some more coffee. They looked at the map together again. Jack and this caretaker fueled the plane again, and then Jack Knight took off once more. By that time, the word had gotten out that Jack Knight, who is considered by many people at this point to be something of a maniac to be doing this stuff, the word gets out and uh, that he's coming towards Chicago. The sun is just coming up, and he lands only about 20 minutes behind schedule. He made up all his time he had to be cut out of his plane because his flight suit had been frozen uh, to the seat. And so they had to cut him out of his plane. The mail went into two other planes that were waiting there at the Chicago airfield. Uh, Jack Knight, as his plane stopped before all this happened, he was mobbed by the crowd who was just excited to see this guy who was brave enough to handle the weather. He was ready to go back that very, just as soon as he landed. He just wanted another plane. He was ready to fly back to Cheyenne after all that. I mean, he was just an incredible guy. But because he did that, the United States Postal Service proved that those planes could fly the route at night, even in the worst of weather. And so he is credited for saving the airmail service. I feel like there needs to be a movie about him. Is there? I don't, I don't know if there is or not, but I would it's be all in. It's a heck of a story. A pilot today would never do what Jack Knight did. How does the story of Jack Knight end? Does he live in Cheyenne? After the airmail service concluded, because eventually Congress said, okay, you're done, they passed something known as the Kelly Airmail Act, which got the United States government out of the airmail business altogether. And what they did is that's when they sold those airmail routes or sections of that transcontinental route to companies like Boeing Air Transport. Bill Boeing came to Cheyenne. He had the intention of hiring all the airmail pilots and their crews on the ground to help maintain his aircraft and fly for the new airline. And of course, now, this is a real money-making opportunity for any of these pilots. Almost all of them signed on with Boeing Air Transport. And then Boeing Air Transport eventually became United Airlines. And, they continue, and Jack Knight continued to fly until he retired for United Airlines in the early 1940s. Well, that's a good segue because your other book is called Wyoming's Friendly Skies. And that book tells the story of airline stewardesses, which, of course, now we call flight attendants. Absolutely. <laughs> so I wanted to just start at the beginning with Nurse Ellen Church. Well, Ellen Church was a young woman. I believe she came from around the Chicago area. 
but she always wanted to fly and was very excited about doing so. She really didn't have any opportunities. Where we have few opportunities for men to fly, there were none for women. The aviation industry all the way up until uh, 1930 was nothing but a male-dominated industry. She eventually found her way to the West Coast. She actually was being trained as a nurse at French Hospital in San Francisco. And uh, she had been around airplanes. She had even flown, but there were no jobs for her. Well, as she was going uh, going to work one day, she passed by the Boeing Air Transport ticket offices and walked in and ran into a guy by the name of Steve Simpson, and uh, she wanted to know if United Airlines had any jobs. Now, it turns out that Steve Simpson was an interesting guy in and of himself. Before World War I, he had been working for steamship companies, and even after World War I, he continued to do that, and he got troops to and from Europe. He was very experienced with how steamship companies operated and kept passengers comfortable on the long trip across the Atlantic. And he had always thought that Boeing Air Transport, who was still struggling to convince people that flying was safe at this point, you got to remember everybody, including Ellen Church, probably grew up thinking that aviation was good for two things, fighting for the military or barnstorming. You know, so here you have guys that are having perfectly good airplanes and flying them into perfectly good barns for a show, or they're doing wing walks, or you could be an airmail pilot and they tell all these crazy stories about what th- what's happening to these airmail pilots. Nobody has the idea that flying is safe for the public. And so United Air or Boeing Air Transport this time has, has very little luck, even making their planes very luxurious to convince the public to fly. Well, Stimson thinks that the way to fix this is to actually have somebody that would act as like a ship's steward that would make sure that people were comfortable, would make sure that they were calm, were able to answer their questions, uh, take care of their needs. And he honestly thought he was going to try men because uh, that's what ship stewards were. Again, another male-dominated career field. And in walks this woman who wants to know whether or not there are any jobs. And he has this brainstorm. And he says, you know what? If we could get women like Ellen Church into the, into the cabin with the passengers, what would be better for getting people to feel safe than a young woman who's brave enough to fly? If they can do it, sure, anybody else can. And then even better but this is going to be kept top secret. She's a fl- she's a nurse. So that means that she's incredibly intelligent. She's also very good at being able to take care of people and meet their needs. And she'll keep a calm head even in an emergency. So she had lots of boxes that were checked off in Steve Simpson's mind that made her an ideal candidate for what he was going to try and give to United Airlines as an idea. And so he and Ellen Church decided to write a letter to to the airline's headquarters in Cheyenne, Wyoming, and pitch the whole idea about having female flight couriers or flight attendants or stewardesses or whatever you wanted to call them. They didn't even really know what they were going to call it themselves. And they were able to convince the company that they should try it. In reading the book, I learned that the requirements for stewardesses weren't based on what I had thought originally. Like I, I grew up in the 70s. So my idea of stewardesses were like the mini skirts and just looking cute. But uh, right. the, those original requirements were actually in response to the actual physical airplane environment. So that's why there was like a height maximum and a weight maximum. And, and like you said, the Absolutely. nurses. So what were the requirements originally? 
for them oh, to be nurses? Yes. Well, first of all, that was a major requirement for anybody that wanted to, or any woman who wanted to fly, is that they had to be a registered nurse. All right. And that was, of course, the idea was is that they were the exact same type of person that Ellen Church modeled as being calm, collected, reserved, and capable. Uh, so they wanted to make sure that they had the skill sets to take care of anything that would happen to the passengers. And many of them did have to use their skills as people got air sick, or if there even was such a thing as a heart, a bad landing or a crash, they were able to use their skills immediately to attend to any of the needs that the passengers might have. So being a flight nurse was one of the principal requirements. Another amazing requirement was they had to be unmarried. So why was that? Was it just because it was kind of, uh, that's what the guys wanted? They wanted to have young unmarried maidens on the plane? No, it was actually something that Stimson came up with. He said he got tired of husbands calling him at his office, wondering when their wives were coming home so they could fix dinner or take care of the kids. Let's just make sure that they're not married at all, that we don't have any of these complications and they can work for us until they do get married because the company at that time is the rest of this society thought a woman's main responsibility if she was married was to be taking care of the family. Teachers too. teachers Correct. at that time had to be unmarried. So it kind of fits with the cultural norms of the time. Nobody thought this was out of the ordinary at all for that very reason. Well, the other requirements were they had to be a certain height. I believe they couldn't be more than five foot two and they couldn't weigh more than 125 pounds. And the reason for that was is because, as you already mentioned, Carla, the restrictions of the airplanes themselves wouldn't allow for any bigger people to be inside the aircraft. Now, while I myself, I'm over six foot three, I could get into that airplane and that'd be fine, but I'm a paying passenger. If you had somebody that had to walk through the cabin and take care of everybody, they couldn't be so tall that they always had to constantly hunch over to get through the plane's flight cabin. Not only that, there's a real reason for the woman to be less than 125, or 125 pounds or less. I understand this being an amateur pilot myself, that if an airplane is going to take off, especially underpowered ones like the ones uh, as they were back in the 1920s and the 1930s, weight is everything. And so they had to weigh the passengers. I mean, how much dignity would there be with that if we had to all be weighed to get onto our plane now? But they had to weigh <laughs> there would all be the protests. There would be protests. Yes, absolutely. But they had to weigh every passenger and they had to weigh all their baggage. And the woman who and the person who did this, of course, was the stewardess. That was one of her jobs was to weigh all of the passengers to make sure that they wouldn't throw the balance of the plane off and that wouldn't affect the performance. But in some instances, the plane might be a little overweight. And I remember there's a great story about one of our stewardesses, one of the earliest ones, who had a terrible experience of how draconian this rule was for the weight of a stewardess when her aircraft was trying to fly between Evanston, Wyoming, and Salt Lake City. So the pilot could not get the plane over the top peaks to clear the mountains. And he tried three times. And finally, he decided he was going to land back at Evanston. He asked the stewardess to get out, and then he was able to fly with his passengers over the mountain the very next time. So the 125 pounds made a difference on that plane, being able to make it just over the top of the mountains to get over. Well, you mentioned that the stewardess job included taking care of the passengers, which they still do, you know, serving food and making sure everyone gets loaded on safely. But they did all sorts of other things, like they delivered telegrams, they took the tickets, they actually loaded the bags. I mean, their jobs were not what the jobs are today. It was no. much more encompassing. 
It was much more encompassing. Again, you got to think about these women were pioneers. This whole career field about what women were supposed to do with an airplane and being a member of a crew was not written yet. And so the general idea was, is if they're going to be a part of the crew, then they're literally going to have to do everything everybody else does. So yeah, they would punch tickets, they would serve meals, they would uh, get the passengers comfortable in their seats like the flight attendants do today. They not only did telegrams, but they also fluffed pillows. They shined people's shoes while they were sitting there. They gave people slippers. And while they were while they were in flight between different destinations, they would polish the shoes and give them back to them. They'd take dictation for uh, telegrams so that the business could go on while they were in flight. They also were responsible for dusting the windowsills, winding the clocks, adjusting the heat if that was available on the plane, swatting flies. And I think my personal favorite, they had to make sure that the passengers opened the right door to go to the bathroom. Because, I mean, it was Parachutes are not included. Parachutes are not included. And the doors are not necessarily marked to the point where people know where they're going if they're flying in the dark. So the stewardess had to make sure that they always open the correct door to the blue room instead of the great wild blue yonder. Uh, And so that was one of my favorites. But even on the ground, they didn't get off the hook. If it was necessary, the earliest stewardesses were required not only to help the get passengers get on and off the plane, but they may be they may be required to help fuel the plane as being part of a bucket brigade. Uh, so they're helping to move the fuel into the airplane, or if the airplane is caught in bad weather and can't fly, the stewardess is required to, with the rest of the crew to help push the airplane back into the hangar. Well, I think it says it all that their uniform, apart from being super glamorous, like I definitely want one of those capes if you ever find one. They had special pockets for like a wrench and a screwdriver, which tells me that somehow they were expected to use those too. Oh, yes, they were. But it's not supposed to be something that the uh, passengers are supposed to notice. Uh, You know, the airplanes only flew maybe 100 to 120 miles at a stretch, and they would pick up passengers and let passengers off as they would go across the continent. Well, as it happens, if the passengers would disembark from the airplane, the other responsibility for the stewardesses is to go around and make sure that the seats were still bolted to the floor after every landing. I'm so <laughs> That's glad. what that screwdriver comes in That's handy. exactly where it was good. I want to kind of switch gears now and ask you some questions that I ask all of my guests. Okay. What is something that people driving today through Wyoming may not realize? Hmm. Well, we complain about what the weather is down here on the ground. Of course, there are many drivers who go across I-80 right now realize just how treacherous going across I-80 is west of Laramie, uh, especially when you get to the area around Elk Mountain. But I will tell you that it's the same up in the air for the early pilots and even the early airliners that Elk Mountain was considered to be one of the most dangerous points on the transcontinental flights because of the constant bad weather, strong winds, and other difficulties that these aircraft would have. Elk Mountain and Medicine Bow is where we lost our first pilot. He lost the side of the railroad tracks right around Elk Mountain in a snow squall and then decided to follow his compass, thinking that he was okay and Cheyenne was at a certain bearing. He flew off across the countryside and then slammed into the side of a mountain instead. So, I mean, you know, that entire area that's dangerous for us to drive on today was incredibly dangerous for the airmail pilots as well. What I think is probably a lot more fun for people as they're driving across Wyoming is that if you're within sight of the Union Pacific Railroad tracks, you're in sight of the landscape that the first pilots would have flown across. 
And so what you're seeing from the ground traveling at the speeds you do on the interstate, you're crossing Wyoming at about the same speed as Jack Knight would have in his biplane. What is the hardest thing about living in Wyoming? Oh, the wind. <laughs> you know, I can I can deal with the cold and I can deal with uh, the long distances between places. Uh, I even enjoy being the distance I am from everywhere else. But I'd say that the one thing that I wish we had less of was that wind. And uh, I'm sure I stand with the pilots because that's the one thing they always remember too, is that doggone wind was always a constant burr under their saddle, as it were. And it's certainly no easier up there in the sky than it is down here on the ground. So last but not least, what do you love the most about our state of Wyoming? I'd say the thing that I really enjoy about Wyoming, and particularly my hometown of Cheyenne, is that we have so many tales and stories to tell that there are, there are places in the United States and around the world that are far larger than us that don't have the same color or the same adventure that we've had and we've been able to experience just because of where we've chosen to make home. Well, I'm so thankful for you for capturing some of those stories. And I know you're working on several different projects and just wanted to see if there were any sneak peeks you could give us or what your latest project was, if you could just kind of tell us about that. Oh, well, I've Starley Selbit and I, who were the two authors of these wonderful books that you mentioned about the airmail pilots and uh, the stewardesses here in Wyoming, we have just recently published a third book called A History Lover's Guide to Cheyenne, where we talk about the wonderful landmarks and things that are left behind by past generations that still create and maintain the character and nature of our community. And this is something that we could do here in Cheyenne, but every community around the state could do something very similar. The built environment around us says so much about who we were and how we came to be who we are. Uh, so that book was a lot of fun. We just published that back in October of 2021. Starley and I have enjoyed working together so much. We are moving forward with another book, which is about the people in the past that are still with us. We're talking about Cheyenne's Lakeview Cemetery and all the wonderful people that are there, including Francis E. Warren, Joseph M. Carey, uh, Nellie Taylor Ross. Uh, you know, so we've got an amazing assortment of people over here in the cemetery here in Cheyenne, and we're going to be exploring a lot of their stories. I'm so excited because I'm a huge cemetery nerd, even when I don't know anybody there. So I will definitely be walking around that cemetery with your book in my hands. So thank you so much for that. Oh, and my thank pleasure. Thank you so much for coming today and sharing the story of flight in Wyoming. Carla, it's been my pleasure and a real delight to be with you today. Thanks so much for inviting me. Next time I drive I-80 from Cheyenne to Laramie, I will look up and remember those early pilots following that railroad track. Today's dot on the map is also tied to the history of flight in Wyoming. It's the tiny town of Bar Nun on Crow, Arapaho, Cheyenne, and Lakota land. Bar Nun is a newish town. It was formally established in 1982, and it's on the old Salt Creek Highway just north of Casper. Now, that was the first stretch of paved roadway in the whole state of Wyoming. Those roads were built to accommodate oil trucks coming into Casper from the oil fields to the north of town. More important for today's story, Bar Nun is the site of Casper's first airport. It was then called Wardwell Field, named after Major D.P. Wardwell, who was a World War I fighter pilot and then later became president of Wyoming Airways. 
1952, the U.S. Army Air Corps purchased property along Highway 2026, and they established the Casper Airport, and so Wardwell Field closed. Well, back to Bar Nun, Romy Nunn had moved to Casper in 1918 with his family. He ranched there for years, and then in 1954, he switched course and purchased the now empty Wardwell Field for $20,500. Romy had dreams of turning the 640 acres into the horse center of the Rockies. Well, when that didn't work out, he subdivided it and created the Barnun Ranch Subdivision, which later became the town of Barnun. But what about the airfield and the airplane hangar? The former runways are now the town streets. And the old airplane hangar? That's now a great restaurant and event center called The Hangar. Barnon is close enough to I-25 that it makes a perfect stop to have a meal and take in some local history. And while you're there, look up and see the old airplanes hanging from the rafters. Because I like to stop at unique restaurants and places in Wyoming, I've started a Wyoming My 307 account on TripAdvisor. And that's where I'll be putting all of my restaurant and other reviews. So check it out. That is the sound of spring. It's a crane and is today's Wyoming wildlife. Sandhill cranes are actually among the world's oldest living bird species. In fact, a 10 million year old crane fossil was found in Nebraska, and they say it looked almost identical to today's sandhill cranes. This means that they were three or four foot tall birds with a wingspan of up to seven feet and their coloring is a brownish gray with flecks of rust on their wings and a bright red patch on their forehead. For such a big bird, they actually have a very short tail, but it's covered by long drooping feathers called a bustle. Sandhill cranes migrate in huge flocks in the tens of thousands. They come from as far north as Siberia and travel as far south as northern Mexico. Cranes can fly two to 300 miles a day, and with a good tailwind, they can travel up to 500 miles. That's almost as fast as Jack Knight flying on a good day. Cranes are so good at using thermal currents that they've been seen flying over Mount Everest. Mountaineers call the altitude above 26,000 feet the death zone because humans cannot acclimatize at that altitude. So flying over Mount Everest means that cranes fly 2,000 feet higher into the death zone. This spring, I had the great fortune of seeing the Sandhill Crane Migration at Rose Sanctuary. It's on the Platte River between Kearney and Grand Island, Nebraska. That area is actually the most important stopover for Sandhill Crane Migration. Scientists think that they've been stopping there for tens of thousands of years. When I went in early March, I got to see, and even more importantly here, over 60,000 cranes landing in the Platte River as the sun sets. By late April, there are about 200,000 congregating there. During the day, the birds eat wasted corn left in the grain fields, which is important because they need to gain almost 20% of their body weight in preparation for their summer breeding season. At night, they sleep on the sandbars of the Platte River where they're protected from predators. They're there for more than good sleep and plentiful food, though. This stopover on the Platte River also gives those singles a chance to mingle, and they are known for their dramatic courtship dances. 
They hop and they flounce their huge wingspans and flirtatiously fling sticks around. And it must work because they pair for life, which is up to 40 years. Each year they have one to two colts, that's what the chicks are called. And the day after they hatch, those independent little colts follow their parents into the marsh to feed. Two to three months later, they learn to fly. The juveniles stay with their parents for about a year to learn the migration path, and then they go out on their own. I can't wait to go back and see them returning in the fall. It is one of the most spectacular wildlife congregations on the continent. Well, time flies when you're having fun, and that's the end of another episode. I hope you enjoyed learning about Wyoming's unique role in the history of flight, about Barnon, Wyoming, and Sandhill Cranes. I have lots of links and more information on the show notes at wyomingmy307.blogspot.com. And while you're there, hit subscribe so you can receive notifications of any episodes. If you have any questions or suggestions, email me, wyomingmy307 at gmail.com. And check out wyomingmy307 on Instagram, all one word, where I post one picture a day of wonderful Wyoming. Happy trails to you until we meet again.